I ask you for your help. I cannot do it without you. In Jesus' name we pray, and amen. You know, for some reason, one of the hardest truths for believers and really for anybody to accept is that of the sovereignty of God. And the reason so is because of the fallenness of our humanity. Whether you know it or not, because of a result of the fall, you want desperately to be in, your flesh wants to be in control of your life. That's a result. That's a consequence of the fall. And so we don't want God to be sovereignly in control of all of our affairs. We want to question God. We want God to do what we want Him to do for us. Now that sounds unreasonable, but that is the way that is the way it is in our humanity. And the scriptures are clear that God does whatever He wants, whenever He wants, however He wants, and because He does, it is right. Because He's God, whatever He does is right. Whether you and I see it as right or whether you or I see it as wrong is indifferent. How we see it does not change the fact that whatever God does is right. He is righteous. He is right. Isaiah 45, God is declaring His absolute sovereignty in raising up a pagan king who will rebuild his city and release his people out of Babylonian captivity and make, bring them back into their homeland. Now this prophecy that we're going to study tonight was given a century and a half before Cyrus, the one God chooses and names in this passage, a century and a half before he lived and even became king of Persia. Now, the modern world says this is just proof evidence that the book is not accurate. It's not from God because who could be that accurate? Well, God can be that accurate. And God is that accurate. And to the flip side, that just proves to us, which you don't have to prove the Bible. It's, it's, it's like a lion. You just open the cage and let it out. But it proves to us that, in fact, this is the Word of God, and God does know what He's doing, and God does have a plan, even a century and a half before it happens. And then the skeptics come along and say, no, 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 it can't be. It's too accurate. This is proof that someone wrote it after the fact. No, it's not. See, it's, it's all about faith. Either you believe this book and you believe all of it, or you don't. You could come to me and say, look, I can prove this to you. I don't, I don't need proof. I believe it. And so, as we come to this passage of Scripture, one of the most difficult things for us to accept is that God is sovereign over everything. Some people look at the world and they say, how could He be sovereign with the mess that we have today? The mess does not change God's sovereignty. God is sovereign even over the mess. But here's what the devil does. The devil wants us to look at the mess rather than look to the sovereign. He wants us fretting over the news. He wants us all torn up so that we lose our testimony, so that the watching world sees no difference in us and them. 
And the watching world, who, an unbelieving world, says, there, you are no different from me. You are fretting. You're worried. If your God is so big, why are you worried? If you believe God is sovereign, why are you worried? I'll tell you why we're worried, because we're, we're sinners. That's why we worry. And because of the fall. So God is going to unfold this wonderful teaching of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Now look with me in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now interestingly enough, the anointed one, the anointed one in, in, throughout the Old Testament refers to the Messiah. Here it does not refer to the Messiah, it refers to Cyrus. Anointed could be ordained or appointed. Cyrus was the king of Persia that God was going to appoint for his divine purposes. You say, well, wait a minute. Was Cyrus a Christian? No. Was he a Jew? No. He was a pagan. So God has a divine plan to use a pagan? Sure he does. He uses them all the time. He, he might be using one in our country right now. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. God has chosen Cyrus for divine purpose. It's a twofold purpose. What was that purpose? Number one, his, to free the people, Israel, free them from Babylonian captivity. And number two, to bring God's judgment on those Gentile unbelieving nations around around Israel. God's going to use Cyrus to do those things. Look at verse 1 there. It says, To Cyrus, whom, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. The double doors and the gates... Dr. John MacArthur writes about that. The inner gates leading from the river to the city were as the palace doors. They were always open. Babylon had many gates, and these doors were always open, apparently a proof that God had a plan and that no one could stop it. What's a gate for? A gate is an entry into, and when the gates close, no one can get in, no one can get out, right? The gate was for protection. What's God saying by the gates being open? With the gates being open, they'd have no fear of any country coming in and taking over them until God's finished with them. Why? Because God is going to use Cyrus for his divine purpose. He could leave the gates open. One of the sermons I remember of Jerry Falwell preaching shortly before he died is God's man in God's will is invincible until God is finished with him. That was his sermon. Verse 2 and 3, God wanted Cyrus to know that it was him that would give Cyrus the power to conquer and to do what he called him to do. Look at verse 2, I will go before you. He's speaking to Cyrus. Remember verse 1, to Cyrus, a pagan king. God is speaking a century and a half before it's going to happen. And he says, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. 
I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Why would you do that, Lord? That you may know that I, the Lord, who have called you by your name, am the God of Israel. God says, listen, I'm going to do all this for you. I'm going to make the crooked straight. I'm going to cut the bars. I'm going to give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden places, the hidden riches of secret places. Why? So that you know that I, the Lord, who have called you by name, that I'm the God of Israel. Verse 4, And secondly, for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. God says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this because I want you to know that I'm God, number one, and number two, I'm doing it for my elect's sake, Israel. I'm not doing this, Cyrus, to make you famous. I'm not doing this to make your kingdom great. I'm doing this for my elect's sake. And Cyrus, don't you forget, I have named you even though you have not known me. Boy, this just blows our paradigm of what we think about God. That God would in fact take a pagan king and use him for his good and his glory. You know why that blows our mind? Because we think humanly. And the curse has changed everything. It has changed everything. He turns in verses 5 through 8 and he distinctively, definitively, he declares his sovereignty without any kind of hidden meaning. Eight times in these verses 5 through 8, approximately eight times, he uses the personal pronoun I or me. Five times approximately he uses the term Lord or God. Look at verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now listen, we understand and we relish and we love the fact that he makes peace, right? But we don't ever want to think about God being the one who creates calamity, do we? Oh, but God does. Why? Because God's sovereign. And whatever He does is right because He's God. And if that bothers you, you have a problem with God. Look at verse 8. Rain down, you heavens, from above. And let the skies pour down righteousness. 
Now, we know that won't happen until the millennial kingdom. Let the earth open. Let, the, let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. God declares without mincing words, without any reservation, that He, in fact, is God alone. No one else has the right to what he has. No one else can say, let there be light, and there's light. I mean, I, 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 even if I had one of them clappers, you know them things that clap on, clap off? I'd be over there trying to get the stupid thing to come on. How in the world could I ever even create light? I can't because I'm not sovereign. But God is sovereign. And here's the problem, guys. We like God to fit the image we want of God. We want God in a box that God's here. And as long as we have Him the way we want Him, everything is fine. But if God knocks the sides of the box out, we don't like that. There are some of you here sitting here, and this would used to bother me, but how in the world could the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord, how could he love someone that done something as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer as much as he loves me? That doesn't make sense. God, that's, God's not in my box, but God loves him just as much as he loves you and me. See, we have a problem with God's sovereignty. We want God to be the way we want Him to be. Do you know that most relationships break down? And at the heart of this, I've been counseling for years. I've studied all the books. I went to counseling training. All that gobbledygook to tell you this. The number one problem between couples is one couple wants the other couple to be like that person themselves. And they get angry when they're not like, you should be this way. Why? Because you're that way. And you want people to be like you because you want to be in control. You want to be the sovereign of your life, but you're not sovereign. You're limited. And the fact that you want to be sovereign reveals that you can't be sovereign. In verses 9 through 13, God is going to display for us and show us that He is sovereign over creation. I love this. Whenever someone wants to talk about is there a God or is there not a God, the first place we ought to go is back to creation. Now listen to me. Please, hear me out. I'm not being smug. I'm being very sincere. It takes more faith to believe that some little amoeba was floating in the water and all of a sudden crawled up on the dry land and it grew legs and evolution happened and we ended up here. The worst testimony for evolution is to look around you. This is not the best. If it's evolved and stopped right here with us, that's not good. But the fact of the matter is it takes more faith to believe that than it does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 9, woe to him who strives with his maker. What do you mean, woe to him who strives with his maker? Whenever you try to take away God's sovereignty, and you put yourself in a place where you 
are the one who is the authority, and you are the sovereign. You are striving against your maker. But see, in this land that we live in today, this day of no accountability, and society is driving the church rather than the church driving society, there's no accountability. It's someone else's fault. There's a clinical diagnosis for everything. And that is evident from the fall. Well, Lord, it's that woman you gave me, Adam said, right? Did he not say that? He said that. This woman that you gave me. And Eve's probably standing there saying, oh, Buster, you're going to get yours. And he looks at Eve and Eve says, well, it's the serpent. Started in the garden. It goes all the way to us. And see, we always strive with our maker when we want to make God like we want God to be. This is why, as a pastor, I'm so adamant about it. <clears throat> this is why I'm so adamant about these little things that people think are not big things, but it is a big thing. Because in our land, they're telling us, listen, don't speak about sin. Don't speak about anything. Make us feel good. No, listen, we need to talk about God. We need to talk about his sovereignty. We need to tell people he's the creator. He created everything. And when you go against that creation, you're striving with your maker. And can I tell you, you're going to lose. You will lose. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? I mean, we were down in um, Pigeon Forge and we were watching this guy, I guess they call it throwing pottery. I did not know that. It's throwing. I'm like, let's see you throw it, man. Throw it. You know, I thought it was going like a food fight or something. But... They start making something. And as we sat there, and I think Amy and Anna and Kendall went somewhere in Wheelersburg and took a class on pottery. Kendall liked it so well, she got her own wheel and got a thing. And, but anyways, all of these people doing this pottery, no one has ever told me the clay asked what they're doing. Hey, what are you making out of me? Why? Because we understand, we understand that the clay doesn't have the right to ask the potter what he's doing. But we feel it necessary that God must explain everything he's doing to us. Why? Because we strive with the maker. We don't understand the sovereignty of God. We don't understand that God is absolutely sovereign. He created things the way he wanted them. And man, it's a beautiful creation. Could you imagine if one of us created? It'd be a royal mess. You know it would. Look at, look at verse 10, or verse, at the end of verse 9, last sentence of verse 9. Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? The, the handiwork doesn't get to say, we don't have, I don't have any hands. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? I mean, I don't think Kendall's going to make it to January, but if we're in January and the baby's born, no one's going to look at Kendall and say, what have you brought forth? I mean, <laughs> that's like suicide. All those hormones. You know. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the 
Holy One of Israel and His Maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He's now speaking of Cyrus. And let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. God says, listen, I've I've, I've made this creation. I've created everything. And I've even created Cyrus for this reason. I'm going to direct his ways. He's going to build my city, and he's going to let my exiles go free. But listen, he's not doing it for price or reward, says Lord of hosts. He's doing it because I'm sovereign, and I'm telling him to. Just like the father says, son, daughter, you're doing it. I don't have to tell you why. You're doing it because I'm telling you to. I'm telling you to. And humanity has a problem with that. Kids start at young age, teens. I don't I think there's really something that happens in their minds when they become teenagers, really. For real. There's some kind of hormonal that just happens. And a teenager will say, Nobody's gonna tell me what to do. Well, why are you wearing them stupid shoes you're wearing? And why is your pants like that? You got more holes in your pants than, never mind. You understand what I'm saying, right? Nobody's going to tell me, but culture drives everything they do. Everything. And it starts as a child. And we rebel against the sovereignty of God. And we don't even call it out anymore. And God looks to the prophet and he's given this prophecy of about this impending prophecy that's coming. And in verse 14, he's going to say, listen, and I want all these other nations to know that I'm sovereign over them too. Look at verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the, of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there's no other. There is no other God. God says, All when I bring you up and I take you out and I send you to do this, all these other nations are going to be subservient to you, Because they're going to see that there's something behind you that's greater than you that's driving this. Verse 15. They're going to say, Truly you are God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Verse 16. These nations, they will be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them, They shall go in confusion together. These are who are makers of idols. 
Not all these people fashioned idols out of their hands. Not all these people were able to work with metals and wood. But they fabricated idols in their minds. And God says they're going to go captive under a pagan leader. And guess what? All of them's going to be destroyed. But guess what happens? Verse 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. God says, I have made a covenant with Israel. I'm keeping my covenant. And I'm going to bring this, these nations to an end by using Cyrus. And then in verses 18 and 19, he inextricably connects his sovereignty as creator to his exclusive declaration as the Lord. Verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, the creator, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. This is what he says. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I Declare things that are right. God says emphatically, what I say is righteous. What I say is right. I don't speak them secretly. I speak them open. And here it is. Bow to me. He is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. And all that God declares is right because he's God. Everything he says is right because he's God. But, oh man, I just love this. God lays out all his sovereignty. He lays out his coming judgment on those nations. And you know what God does? He gives an invitation. He gives an invitation. Look at verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from the time? Have not I the Lord and there is no other God besides me? A just God, a Savior, there is none besides me. And here it is. Here's the invitation. Look to me. And be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. In this all-encompassing invitation, He is inviting from all four corners of the earth. You say the earth is round. Yes, but the Lord speaks of the four corners in His Word, so I can say it too. He will bring anyone that will come to him. And there's this great argument over who can be saved and who can't be saved. That is ridiculous. Why would you do that? If you come to him, the Bible says he will in no wise cast you out. He says here, all the ends of the earth, look to me and be saved. If you want to know, come and be saved. You don't have to argue who can and who can't. That's futile. Just come. Just come to the Lord and believe him. 
Look to him and be saved. Why? Because he's God and there is none other. Look at verse 23. I love this. God says, I swear by myself. So You know how some people, Lord, pardon me, I don't like to do this, but someone says, I swear to God. God says, I swear by myself. Because there's no one greater than I to swear by. That's what it says. It literally says that. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and it shall not return. Now listen. That to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Do you know what Philippians uh, chapter 2 tells us? Uh, It's also quoted in Romans. But Philippians chapter 2 and I think Bryce will have it up here on the screen. Verses 9 through 11, listen to this. Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God even gives us here a reference to the New Testament declaring that Jesus Christ is God and that every knee will bow before Him and every tongue will confess to Him because He is sovereign and He alone deserves it. In verse 24, He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To Him... Men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. There's a, there's a, um, a division here. There will be those who to him come, and then there will be those who don't, who are incensed against him, and they will be ashamed. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel, listen to this, shall be justified and shall glory. We come to Romans In Romans chapter 4 and 5, we learn that we are justified by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone in the sovereign creator. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he is sovereign. And what he says is, look to me in this invitation. Look to me. Why? Because he lets us know in verses 24 and 25 that there will be judgment. That everyone will stand before the sovereign God. And we come to the New Testament and we read that all judgment has been given to Jesus. We read in Philippians that at His very name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is the express representation of the Father. We see, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the sovereign God. And so, this passage of Scripture is powerful. And I think really the message is here is to look to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. And there are five things quickly I'd like to say. Number one, God is absolutely sovereign over everything. God's in control. Absolutely control over everything. Your life, your creation, your salvation, everything. Your future, your eternity. God is absolutely sovereign over it. Number two, because He is sovereign, whatever He does is right. 
God makes no mistakes. God's never had a uh-oh moment. He has not. There have been men and women who've tried to say that he has. That is just a misrepresentation of the Scriptures. Number three, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to his sovereignty. Those who mock him, those who scoff him, and those who make light of him today, they will bow before him and they will confess that he is sovereign, that he is the sovereign Lord of glory. We choose to do it because we believe in him. We do it voluntarily now because he's our Lord and Savior. Those who refuse, they will do it later at the judgment, and it will be too late. It will be too late for them. Number four, every one of us will face the sovereign Lord. Every one of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives since we've been saved. Those who are not saved, they will stand before him at another judgment, a different judgment. But everyone will face the sovereign Lord. He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't do all that nonsense. He has accurate records. And he knows everything. And he will, he will reveal his sovereignty visibly to us. Number five. Salvation is only in the Sovereign Lord. It's only in the Sovereign Lord. Salvation is only in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in your works, what you can do. You cannot be good enough. None of us can be good enough. Yet, our flesh feels like we have to be good enough. And we beat ourselves up all the time, continually. You know why? Because if we're beaten up and beaten down, we're not focusing on the sovereignty of God. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. If you have looked to the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation and you're trusting in Him and Him alone, you are saved. And your salvation is secure in Him, not in anything you or I do. Because I will tell you this, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But we can't. And praise be to God. I love that clip that went around on Facebook not too long ago. Everybody saw it. Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg. I love to hear him preach. <laughs> he was preaching and he was talking about why he should be in, allowed into heaven. And he was talking about the thief on the cross. And the thief on the cross, the one who repented and said, basically, he said, I'm, I'm with him. And he pointed to Jesus. That's the only reason you and I will make it to heaven is because of the sovereign Lord. So this matter of sovereignty, we need to take it drastically serious. We need to be, I mean, I mean real serious about the sovereignty of God. It's nothing to play about. You know, um, I, I know some people have good intentions and they, they say foolish things and they jest and joke around and, you know, in churches today. And, but when it comes to the sovereignty of God, we must be very, very careful. Because I remind you that God is so holy and righteous, no one saw him. Moses saw his hand behind him and saw his glory and had to veil his face and hid his face in the cleft of the rock. 
these weirdos on TV that preach that they saw God and he rode on his Harley with him and all that nonsense. They are not understanding the sovereignty of God. Thomas was a big man unless I see Jesus and put my hands in his, his hands and feel his scars, I'm not going to believe. He was a big man until Jesus showed up next time and he's like, oh Lord, sovereignty, sovereignty. So may God bless you and may you always, always bow to the real king, King Jesus. Father, we thank you, we love you.